There's practically a church on every street corner in America, and yet their impact seems to be minimal. Why is that? Where is the church when children are being sexualized, when there's a creeping socialism, militant Marxism, and God is being driven from public life? Where's the church? Where are you? You know, I've spent my career taking on some of the cultural baddies, you know, some of the most prominent intellectuals in the world, some of them in public debates, some of them behind the scenes. And I've come to realize that ideas define everything that we do. With an academic degree, you're trained to be a researcher and writer to the point that it's annoying. I mean, but I'm grateful for it. I'm not talking about books I've not read. I'm not talking about papers I've not read. Whether I agree with them or not actually isn't the point. Uh, there are quite a few books that I would read that I would say are actually evil books. Donald Trump, when he was in a divorce with his first wife, she said he has a copy of Mein Kampf next to his bed. I wish more people did. If the German people had bothered to read that book rather than just have it on their shelf, we might have avoided the Holocaust. If more people read the Quran, they'd be wiser to what Islam actually is, what they actually believe. If people bothered to read, as I have, the writings of Klaus Schwab and the various contributors to the World Economic Forum and the ideas that are driving the globalists, I read them because I want to understand their mentality. I cut out the middleman. I go straight to the ideology. Everything in your life is being defined by either your ideas or the ideas of the people around you. And each episode, we're gonna be digging into a different idea that appears in the culture. This is Ideas Have Consequences with me, Larry Alex Taunton. I wanna to begin today's podcast with a story, a, a thriller, the stuff of an epic movie. It is the story of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. In October of 1944, as the war in the Pacific was moving into what we now know were the final phases of the war, the outcome was anything but certain. I mean, that's because Imperial Japan, though it was battered, it was still lethal. The atomic bomb was not yet fully developed. American forces were engaging in a bloody island-hopping campaign to regain control of the Pacific and move ever closer towards Imperial Japan. And the next on the list in October 44 was the recapture of the Philippines to, to fulfill General Douglas MacArthur's famous promise, I shall return. So on October 20, after a series of airstrikes on the landing zone, MacArthur and 130,000 men of the 6th Army went ashore at Leyte, an island in the southern Philippine archipelago, to provide MacArthur's forces with um, the support they needed. Admiral Kincaid's uh, fleet would block the southern approaches to the Gulf and Admiral Halsey's fleet would block the northern approaches because what they were trying to prevent was the Japanese slipping into the San Bernardino Strait and then being able to bombard uh, MacArthur's army as it was there vulnerable on the beaches. The Japanese, for their own part, they knew that they couldn't exchange broadsides with the American Navy. They're, the, uh, the, the Japanese fleet by this time had been largely decimated, but not wholly. And, um, and the American Navy was now at its full strength, full might. And having made a careful study of Admiral Halsey's character, they decided that their best strategy was to try to lure him away. They, they concluded that he probably really didn't like his, his role in uh, this particular campaign of really serving as a babysitter for MacArthur's forces as they were vulnerable on the beach. So they came up with a plan that they would try to lure him away from the strait, leaving it undefended. 
It's important to have a Christian worldview. The question becomes, how do we build that? How do we develop that? Oftentimes we have Bible teachers who are very faithful in teaching scripture, but don't ever quite make the connection with the outside world. Other times we have Bible teachers who don't really want to touch certain topics because they just seem to be too toxic. At Tomap.com, you are going to find a wide range of issues being addressed to help you build out that Christian worldview. They're on things from, from suffering, uh, dealing with mental health, to racial reconciliation. These are all issues that you will find at Tomap.com, and they'll help you to build out a Christian worldview and to flourish. I hope you learn a lot from the podcast, but you can go beyond the podcast to the courses that we offer at Tome. So I hope you'll take a look at them and sign up. To get access to more than 100 Tome courses, use the code IDEAS. And for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all kinds of courses on a wide variety of subjects. Individuals with expertise, with experience in subjects that will be meaningful to you. So use the code IDEAS and for $8.25 a month, you can get access to all of them. Go to tomap.com. Back to the podcast. And so they put together a, um, a ragtag decoy fleet under Admiral Ozawa. And Admiral Ozawa would be the carrot that they would dangle before Halsey's nose. The idea being that Halsey's uh, um, uh, scout planes would eventually spot Ozawa's fleet and that he would pursue it. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. But there was a contingency plan for this. And the contingency plan for the Americans was that if Halsey decided to engage elsewhere, that he would leave what famously became known as Task Force 34 behind to block the entrance to San Bernardino Strait and thus uh, not leaving MacArthur's forces completely vulnerable. And Task Force 34 would be equal to, superior to anything the Japanese could put in the ocean. So Task Force 34 was to be left behind. But it isn't what happened. Halsey pursued Ozawa's forces northward, and he took with him, he took with him, unbelievably, Task Force 34. So the entrance to the strait was wide open. The door was wide open. The Japanese plan had worked to perfection. Now, what would follow was the largest naval battle in history that included more than 250 ships, 2,000 aircraft, 200,000 men, and it encompassed roughly 100,000 square miles of open water. All that stood between MacArthur's army and the Japanese fleet that was prepared to annihilate them right there on the beach as they were slipping into the Gulf the undefended Gulf, was a little flotilla under Admiral Sprague called Taffy 3. Taffy 3 consisted of 13 ships. The Yamato, the pride of the Japanese Navy that now led the attack, was larger than all 13 of Admiral Sprague's Taffy 3 fleet put together. That one battleship was bigger than all of them put together. They were known as the Tin Cans. Messages were sent asking for help. Enemy forces attacking our forces request Lee, the commander of, of Task Force 34, proceed top speed to cover Leyte, request immediate airstrike by fast carriers. This was met with confusion by those listening some 5,000 miles away at Pearl Harbor. What, wasn't Task Force 34 covering the strait? Negative came the reply. Halsey, far to the north by this time, was engaging in the wrong battle at the wrong time. And he wasn't responding to the messages. But the messages, each taking two hours to reach their destination, just kept on coming, becoming increasingly desperate as the morning wore on. Fast battleships urgently needed immediately at Leyte. 
like the Spartans at Thermopylae, Sprague's little flotilla fought with ferocity against the Japanese, greatly admired by the Japanese, but they were vastly outmatched. Still, they fought on as ships were being sunk and holes, massive holes, being blown into the sides of Taffy 3, returning fire on some of these big battleships. They just, they just simply bounced off the, the holes. They just weren't big enough. Another message begged Halsey to act. My situation is critical. Fast battleships and support from airstrike might be able to prevent the enemy from entering Leyte. Back at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was the uh, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Theater, he couldn't stand it anymore. He was mystified by Halsey's apparent failure to respond to the repeated calls for help. He was alarmed by the impending disaster at Leyte. So he decided to send a message of his own to Halsey. And what Halsey received is the now famous straightforward reprimand, where, repeat, where is Task Force 34? The world wonders. It is instructive to me that in the biggest naval battle in history, the biggest, most heavily armed ships in the United States Navy never fired a shot. Moreover, the bulk of the U.S. naval forces in this theater were engaged in the wrong battle at the wrong time. They weren't where they were supposed to be. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I've been reflecting on the story of the Battle of Leyte Gulf and the reprimand, where, repeat, where is Task Force 34? The world wonders as I reflect on the American church. Because I find myself asking, where? Repeat, where is the American church? The world wonders. The American church, like Halsey's third fleet, it's capable, well-armed, but largely irrelevant in the battles that matter. When was the last time your pastor addressed transgenderism from the pulpit? Critical race theory politically motivated violence, rioting, the issue of freedom, private property, theft, self-responsibility, Marxism, or our unity in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there aren't pastors out there who are doing this. There are. I know many of them. But unfortunately, there are many who are not. And indeed, I would suggest the majority are not addressing these issues. It's not as if the Bible doesn't have anything relevant to say about these things. It does. But very few pastors are mining the Bible of these important issues. Worse, many who do preach on these issues are doing it from the woke perspective rather than from a biblical perspective. So again, the question is, where, repeat, where is the American church? Now, I know that many of you who listen to this podcast are not Christian. I know there are plenty of atheists who listen to this, plenty of Muslims who listen to this. So today, I'm inviting those of you who are not Christians to listen in as we have kind of an um, internal conversation about what's going on with the American church. I ask you to indulge us today as we discuss this issue. I'm going to lay out for you several reasons why I think the American church has become largely ineffective. Number one, abandonment of the word and thus of doctrine. Now, everything else that I will say in this podcast flows from this issue. Abandonment of the word and thus the abandonment of doctrine. The result of that has been disastrous for the American church church. It's also resulted in the loss of mission. I think that many churches have completely lost any sense of what their core mission actually is. I began noticing a trend, oh, maybe about 20 years ago, where churches which had become infatuated with business models um, with reading things like, let's say, Jim Collins, Good to Great, or something. I'm not saying that can't be helpful. I've read it. It's, it's a very helpful book. But business models in the church 
have very limited value in the church. And about 20, maybe more than that, maybe 30 years ago, um, church boards being infiltrated with businessmen, being businessmen heavy, that is often the way they see the world. It's often the way they see ministry. And the two are not, are not the same. It isn't to say that, that there aren't sound business principles that can be applied to ministry. Certainly there are and need to be. On the other hand, um, you begin making some very unwise decisions when you're simply driven by business principles. And one of these things that, uh, that I remember seeing was um, churches having these lengthy discussions about their mission statement. We need to develop a mission statement. And I would always find myself thinking, isn't it obvious what your mission statement is? Go ye into all the world. I mean, isn't it, isn't it right there in Scripture what your mission statement is? But the feeling seemed to be that they needed to develop a mission statement apart from the mission statement, which is already in Scripture. So you end up often with a divided mission, a dual mission. Uh, you're not real clear on what your purpose is. I think this is also reflected in the fact that many churches, and this is particularly true of Baptist churches, I think, often confuse the purpose of the church with that of, say, a tent meeting, where every Sunday becomes an evangelistic event. That is not the purpose of the church. It is not the purpose of the church. It is the community of believers who are gathering, gathering together to be um, spiritually fed, spiritually nourished, equipped to go out into the world, to worship God, to praise God. That's the purpose of the church right there. But when you confuse the purpose of the church with um, an evangelistic gathering on a Sunday morning, which should be a worship service, then you end up with a, a lot of things that don't quite line up with what your real mission statement should be. But the loss of doctrine goes much deeper than that. Darbin McCullough, who is an Oxford University historian in his book, The Reformation, and I have to say this, I don't, I don't think McCullough is a man of faith, but he is a church historian, and his book on the Reformation I consider to be quite stellar. He says this at the, at, at the end of that book, which is you know about that thick. I'm quoting He's talking about the modern evangelical church. The founding fathers of the Reformation would be surprised by what is missing from modern Protestantism. During the 20th century, Protestant Christianity quietly ceased to talk about one of the forces which had given it urgency, the fear of hell. That is an interesting observation, that the church quietly dropped the doctrine of hell. When was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? Appeared quite frequently in Jesus' own preaching. Quite regularly, he preached about hell, as I said in the previous podcast, more than he did about heaven. And yet, it's quietly disappeared from American pulpits, largely. I'm, I'm not speaking for every church or for every pastor. And you know something else I've noticed? Ignorance of what hell actually is. Too often I have heard preachers who ought to know better speaking of it as a, quote, place of separation from God. A place of separation from God. That, that frightens no one who isn't a Christian. Because they think to themselves, well, I don't believe in him or I don't want him anyway. I mean, what do I care if I'm not spending eternity with him? That is a twisting of Paul's meaning in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Read the whole verse. Hell is not a place of spatial separation. That's not what he means there, you know, where you're over there in one part of the universe and God is over here, and that, that hell is this place that's like a cosmic dumping ground where God has no idea what is going on over there. That's not what hell is. That isn't what it is. It's Paul is not there talking about spatial separation from God. He's talking about a separation from God's mercy. God will reign in hell. This will jar some of you. Hell is actually a good place. It is a good place. It was created good for the destruction of evil. That's its purpose. 
It's not an evil place. God didn't create an evil place. He created a good place for the destruction of evil. That is the purpose of hell. And God will reign in hell. But you must understand what it actually is. It's separation from his mercy. There comes a time where the window closes, the door closes on repentance. It becomes too late. In his epic poem, Paradise Lost, John Milton offers this description. I love Paradise Lost. You should read Paradise Lost. It is, it is epic. A universe of death, which God by curse created evil, for evil only good, where all life dies, death lives, and nature breeds, perverse, all monstrous, all prodigious things, abominable, inutterable, and worse than fables yet have feigned or fear conceived. That is hell. That is John Milton's description of hell in Paradise Lost. Interestingly enough, Darwin McCullough also says in his book on the Reformation that the 20th century, he's speaking of the decline, you know, in the 20th century, what has happened between the Reformation and now, and why are churches in the West declining? Well, the first he says, you know, they've stopped preaching about hell. They've given up on their own doctrines. Second thing he says is that churches, Christians, have accepted religious pluralism. They've accepted religious pluralism. They don't stand their ground on doctrine at all because they just decide it really doesn't matter. This is the result of abandoning the word, of abandoning word-centric Christianity. And is there any real Christianity that isn't word-centric? Second, an intellectual retreat. Now, I've talked about this before on this podcast, but it bears repeating something I call the British fighting square. And let me, let me explain this. Mark 12, 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Strength meaning, you know, the body. Um, the British used something through the 19th century they called the fighting square, the British fighting square. And the way the British fighting square worked was that soldiers... Would, would get into a square, maybe one, two, possibly even three ranks deep with their guns facing outward and their central command post being right in the middle of the square and their guns facing outward. And with men alternately rising and kneeling, reloading, firing, reloading, firing, they could keep up a fairly constant rate of fire. And they could actually even move. The square was designed where they could actually move it if they needed to, they could steadily move in a, in a particular direction, direction they wanted to go. The fighting square was incredibly effective against much larger forces because it was so highly disciplined. Napoleon sent, and I see, by the way, there's a new movie coming out about Napoleon. Should be interesting. What's his name? Joaquin Phoenix plays Napoleon. I'm having a hard time seeing that, but he played Commodus in, in Gladiator. So who knows? Maybe he'll, maybe he'll pull it off. Napoleon, not Joaquin Phoenix, but Napoleon sent his cavalry repeatedly against the fighting squares, the British fighting squares at Waterloo, but he couldn't break them. He couldn't break them as hard as he, as hard as he tried. Now, the fighting square is effective so long as no side breaks. If any side breaks, the whole thing collapses. Now, let me explain to you I'll sketch it out here for you, what this actually looks like and what this has to do with the intellectual retreat from the culture. So as I've said, Mark 12, 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Again, strength being the body. So here's the British fighting square. Each side here represents a part of Mark 1230, which is a part of any effective church, any effective Christian. You have the heart, it's not very well done, soul, mind, and strength, which is, again, to say the body. Now, let's try to think of 
ministries that deal with the heart. Well, I, I think of counseling ministries that deal with the heart. Um, the soul, well, that would be the institutional church through the distribution of the sacraments and the sound preaching and teaching of the word. How about the body? Well, the body would include such things as, let's say, benevolence ministries, soup kitchens, medical missions. Now, there, there are some overlap, you know, between these things. There, there's no, you know, real exclusivity. And then, of course, the mind. Now, what are some ministries that deal with the mind? Well, uh, you know, I hope on this podcast I'm addressing the mind. Certainly the institutional church does some of that. Apologetics organizations deal with the mind. Sound preaching and teaching deals with the mind. Now, I would argue, and I'll come back to this, that since 1859, the church has been in retreat from this side of the square. And remember, the church is only as strong, the square is only as strong as its four sides. But as this side has collapsed, the enemy has been pouring in ever since and it threatens the integrity of the entire square. It threatens the integrity of the entire church. So, as you can see, the church has been in retreat ever since. And why is that? Well, I would argue that 1859, and we'll do another podcast on this, was a pivotal moment because that is when Charles Darwin published the origin of species. And the origin of species had a massive impact on the church because the church wasn't equipped for the most part. There were those who did, but the church for the most part wasn't equipped to offer actual substantive answers to Darwin's claim of naturalistic evolution. That is to say a godless evolution that, that all of life was the was the product of random chance and necessity. Now, do I personally believe there are answers to that? Absolutely. But I'm very mindful of something that Huxley said, Aldous Huxley, I believe. It could have been Thomas Huxley, but I think it was Aldous Huxley who said that Darwin made uh, atheism intellectually credible. And William Provine, the, the late professor of evolutionary biology at uh, Stanford University, I think that's where he was, Provine, who said that that. Uh, Darwinian evolution was um, the greatest engine of atheism ever invented. And so in many respects, the church has been retreating intellectually for, you know, 150 years. And you know what is good evidence of this? Have you noticed that some of the strongest defenders of the Christian faith are themselves not Christian? That's a problem in my mind. Rush Limbaugh. Now, David Limbaugh, who is a friend of mine, has told me that Rush, near the end of his life, gave his life to Christ. I, I, I very much want to believe that. Um, but, you know, Rush was very much a defender of a Judeo-Christian worldview. He was a defender of a conservative, a Christian-based conservative worldview. But at least for much of his career, Rush wasn't a Christian. Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is Jewish. Ben Stein. Ben Stein, who um, you know, put out that film, or at least he was the host of the film that came out about a decade ago called Expelled, where he was talking about you know, alternative views to naturalistic Darwinian evolution in the academy and how people who, who held to other beliefs were being driven out of the university. And, uh, and Ben Stein had that you know, now somewhat infamous encounter with Richard Dawkins in that film. But Ben Stein is Jewish. Melanie Phillips. Some of you won't know who Melanie Phillips is. You need to know who she is. She is an intellectual powerhouse. She is a friend of mine. She writes for the Times, Daily Mail. In the UK, she's a woman of great courage. Um, to read her, you feel like you're reading Francis Schaeffer. But again, she's Jewish. Jordan Peterson, who is an agnostic. I saw that Jordan a couple of days ago, we follow each other on Twitter. Um, a couple of days ago, he issued a challenge to Richard Dawkins. And my reply to that challenge was to say that <laughs> here was Jordan offering to debate Richard Dawkins' assertion, which is the, comes from the first line of his, his best-selling book, The God Delusion. 
in which he says something like this. It's much longer than this, but the, the God of the Old Testament is the most misogynistic, hateful, genocidal, on and on and on, maniac. And Jordan Peterson said, hey, anytime, anywhere you want to debate that, Richard Dawkins, I'm there. And my reply to that was to say, exactly how will you do that, Jordan? You're, you're not a Christian. So you are in the, the unenviable position of defending a book you don't understand and a religion that you don't believe in. To me, that's odd. An agnostic defending the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's not to say that he couldn't punch holes in Dawkins' um, argument, but he couldn't put forward a positive case for the gospel without looking like a hypocrite because he himself is not a believer in the Christian gospel. Make more sense for me to debate him on that than for Jordan Peterson to do that. Some would argue that Trump is a non-Christian defender of the Christian faith. I know there are those who say that he's given his life to Christ. I don't know. I don't pretend to have a window to the soul. But again, one could certainly say that in many respects, in terms of policy, there is no question that Trump has been a strong defender of a Christian worldview. But my, my point is to say, this is a sad state of affairs when your, your most famous defenders of the Christian religion are not themselves Christian. How many podcasts are out there that, like this one, are actually Christian podcasts? They're not just coming from some vague Christian belief that are engaging on the political issues, the cultural issues. It's not a good thing what we're seeing in that regard. Number three, retreat from the world. The Family Life Center is for me symbolic. If you live in some other part of the world, you may not know what I'm talking about, but these are the hyper expensive multi-million dollar facilities that is part of the megachurch phenomenon. These these big complexes that are there for church use for, you know, um, potlucks. And some of them have, you know, incredible workout facilities and daycares and all these kinds of things. I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that there, there can't be some good use and purpose for, say, um, fellowship halls. They're, they're often very necessary and a very good thing. But to me, the family life center phenomenon is symbolic of our problem, is symbolic of a kind of new monasticism, of a retreat from the world into the church to live within your own Christian bubble rather than engaging with the world. I uh, tweeted some years ago, and it made some people mad. <laughs> I saw a bulldozer, you know, knocking down a big building. You couldn't tell what the building was, and I took a picture of the building, and I said, this is my plan for the Family Life Center. <laughs> I like to see the demolition of the Family Life Centers because I like to see Christians engaging their world, rubbing elbows with unbelievers. You know, it seems to me that the only place that many Christians are willing to engage the world is with their children in public schools. The one place they shouldn't be doing it. You should be sheltering your children. You should be keeping your children within a Christian bubble for the most part. That's your role. That's your job. You need to be equipping them. You need to be training them, training them upright, um, hiding scripture in their hearts, helping them to memorize it, giving them a Christian worldview and slowly exposing them to the world while you hold their hand, either literally or, or figuratively, as they come to grow in strength and knowledge and ability to stand on their own two feet. Instead, Christians are dumping their children off at daycares and in godless, sometimes private schools as well, where their children are having ten their tender faith such as it is being demolished by a godless agenda. That's not good. It seems to me that the retreat from the world looks a little bit like a pie chart. It's like, it's like somehow churches adopted a mentality that said that the Christian faith applied, if you can picture a pie chart, it applied to the whole of life except for a little sliver or maybe a fairly big sliver that included, say, politics and controversial cultural issues. 
Yep. We're prepared to preach messages on money. Giving's important. We're prepared to preach messages on the family, messages on the miracles of Jesus, uh, messages on uh, having a purpose-driven life, messages on finding your spiritual gifts, messages on any number of things, except what's actually happening right outside the church door. It's not happening. It seems to have been forgotten that it was the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield that not only gave birth to the Great Awakenings and the wave of English political reforms that swept the country, but it also spared Britain from the bloody revolution and reign of terror that gripped France in the last quarter of the 18th century. It was the constant parliamentary harangues of abolitionists like William Wilberforce that conquered the evil of slavery in Britain and throughout its empire. It was the preaching of ministers like Jonathan Mayhew, James Caldwell, and John Witherspoon that sparked the American Revolution and gave it ideological teeth. Witherspoon actually served in the Continental Congress and was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Do you think that guy believed in actual, actual civic political engagement? Sure did. It was the preaching of men like Charles Finney that gave rise to the Second Great Awakening and the early anti-slavery movements in America that eventually resulted in the demise of slavery in the United States. And it was the preaching of pastors like Martin Luther King Jr. that would lead to the reforms that we collectively called the Civil Rights Movement. It was Christians who were behind the great political and social reform movements. When I was doing a, uh, a debate on Al Jazeera, the host, the host decided to roll his eyes and act appalled when I said that every meaningful reform movement in the West was driven by Christians, those with a Christian worldview. And he, <gasps> he was so appalled. And he said, well, what about gay rights? <laughs> I said, well, that's not a legitimate civil right. And he just acted even more, you know, like he was going to pass out. It isn't. Trans rights, all these kinds of things, complete nonsense. And in fact, they're anti-rights movement. Those are movements about suppressing your rights and my rights. It's about giving them special status. It's about promoting a perverse agenda in the culture. Number four, a poor and highly ineffective process for identifying and developing pastors and priests. If you look closely, you will notice that ministry attracts both the best and worst of men. The best because they want to serve their fellow man. They want to serve God. The worst because they don't want to work. There are those people who see the church as an opportunity to take advantage of other people, to come in like snakes and to pretend to be servants while in fact they are fleecing God's people. I mentioned on a previous podcast that while I was in Rome, I was in Rome earlier this year, I was there for three months. And um, though I'm not Catholic, I, um, you know, met on a regular basis with a, a friend who was a Catholic priest. And I was asking him about the sex scandal that is the the child abuse scandal within the Catholic Church. And he says their own internal investigation has revealed that pedophiles identified the church, the priesthood, as a place they could go to hide and to advance their own sordid agenda, to feed their hungers. Because it gave them cover. People say, you know, it's kind of odd that he's still single at 50. Yes, well, he's in the priesthood. It's kind of odd he has such an attraction for little boys. Ah, but he's in the priesthood. He's just mentoring them. The church has often attracted the worst of men. You must understand this. People say to me, well, it was the church. It was Christians who were doing all these terrible things. I say, do you know? It wasn't Christians who were doing these things. It was people who were hijacking the church, leveraging it for their own purpose. And another thing uh, about this, when I say that it's a poor and highly ineffective process for identifying and developing pastors and priests. Having sat on multiple church boards, 
you find that it often looks like this. Somebody just simply kind of raises their hand and say, God is calling me to ministry. And that's a way of sort of taking the discussion off the table. I mean, I mean, if God's called me, I mean, can, can you really question that? Can you really question that? It's a way of doing an end run on any kind of actual um, drilling down into a person's qualifications and see whether or not that call is genuine. If you want to be a lawyer, you have to have a certain kind of education. You have to pass the bar. You want to be a nurse, you have to pass the state nursing exams. Um, you want to be a CPA, you have to pass that examination. But often ministry, I'm not, I'm not calling for a state board or something like that. Rather, what I'm trying to say is it, is it is a field for opportunists to come in and to take advantage of God's people because often church leadership who should be the gatekeepers aren't minding the gate. They're not paying attention. And so you end up with people in ministry who have no business being there. And that leads me to my next point, number five, wolves within the church. In Acts 20, verses 26 through 31, the apostle Paul warns of wolves sneaking into the church. And he says this, therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. And by the way, that goes back to point number one, the abandonment of a word-centric faith, the abandonment of doctrine. Notice what Paul here says, I proclaim to you the whole will of God. He didn't skip over parts of Scripture to suit an agenda. You can take Scripture and line it up in such a way to push a personal agenda to push a social agenda, to, pr to push a godless agenda. You can do that. Paul here says, I didn't hesitate to proclaim to you the whole will of God. You need to look at that. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. And then he says, even from your own number. So the savage wolves will attack from outside the church. These are, these are people who aren't Christians who are seeking to destroy the church. Guys like, let's say, Joe Biden and Gavin Newsom. If you watch what Gavin Newsom was trying to do to churches in California and his, his battle with John MacArthur to try to shut that church down legally and MacArthur wouldn't bend to his will. And ultimately the courts, by the way, supported him in his refusal to close the church. Those are wolves from outside the church. But the more dangerous wolves, the much more dangerous wolves are the ones that come from within the church. Paul says they're there. They will arise from even your own number. Let me point out to you some of the modern day wolves in the church. Now, these are individuals who expend their energies on things like Trumpism, on social justice, so-called, while largely ignoring the annihilation of the unborn, irreversible adolescent sex change surgeries, the fascism of the left, Marxist tactics in our streets and in the halls of government, open borders, ballot harvesting, and a war with dubious objectives in Ukraine. They ignored these. These are individuals, these wolves are individuals who are, in other words, de facto supporters of the regime. Number one on my list, you might guess if you have followed my writing, David French. Let's, let's put the graphic of David French, of uh, his headline on the screen. It's New York Times. David French writes now for the New York Times. He is supposedly their go-to conservative with the paper of record. And here you have this headline, How Christians 
and drag queens are defending the First Amendment. Thank you, David French. Thank you for your fierce defense of the Christian faith. David French, I've written, by the way, I won't go into detail about all of these, but you can find on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com, LarryAlexTaunton.com. I have several articles there that deal with the individuals that I mentioned here and go into more detail about their use or lack of use of Scripture to, put a God, to push a godless agenda, which they are doing. But here's a wolf. This is a guy who likes to, he likes to punch right. The primary enemies for David French are conservative, Bible-believing Christians. Russell Moore. Russell Moore, who is now like, has some title of public theologian at, you know, at Christianity Today or something like that. Christianity Today has completely lost the plot. But here's the headline with CNN Politics the survival of a Southern Baptist who dared to oppose Trump. I'm using these headlines because I want to demonstrate to you how leftist media lavishes each one of these individuals with very favorable headlines and attention. These guys get published by the Washington Post, by the New Yorker, by the New York Times. They get interviews with Vanity Fair and with all the major networks who all treat them with kids' gloves and how wonderful they all are. You can find a dozen headlines just like this one. Interestingly enough, years ago, I did a conference with, with Russell Moore, just the two of us, I believe, um, at a mega church. And uh, he spoke one night, and that was followed by a Q&A with the pastor before this, this um, big congregation. It was, a, it was a conference on apologetics. And then I spoke another night, and then that was followed by a Q&A. And, uh, and then the two of us, I think, um, did a Q&A uh, together sitting with the pastor on the stage. Now, when he spoke, out of respect, I went to hear him. Um, I, I wanted to hear what he had to say. And at the time, he was dean of the doctoral um, program at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, presumably a, uh, a staunch conservative. And you know what really stuck out to me at that time? Uh, I'm Nothing that I found particularly objectionable with his presentation, but I thought it was odd because this is, say, maybe 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. And um, something that he staunchly opposed was VeggieTales. VeggieTales. I thought, okay, that's not a hill I want to die on, but okay. And another one that came up during, I think, the Q&A was that he was of the view that the, the wine in Scripture was not fermented. This is not unique among Southern Baptists, but I thought, again, not a hill I want to die on. I'm pretty sure the wine in John chapter 2, or where Jesus performs the, the miracle of turning water into wine, pretty sure that was fermented. <laughs> pretty sure they got drunk. We have, we have indications of intoxication in the Old Testament. You can't get drunk on that which isn't fermented. Furthermore, I just know as a historian Fermentation was a way of, of keeping something, meaning without refrigeration, wine was something that could be kept for quite a long time without refrigeration. I thought this was odd. Now, how does a guy who pushes those two things, which you would might say are ultra-conservative, ultra-right viewpoints, how does a guy go from that to being a de facto supporter of a radical leftist regime. I am left scratching my head on that. I remember one of, the, one of the things he actually said in that conference. I'm amazed you'd remember that because you were, you were just a kid. Um, I remember one of his actual statements was that he would rather his children watch Desperate Housewives than Vinny Jones. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, even as a kid, I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, what's been said off, off uh, camera here is my son, Zachary, who was there. And gosh, how old would you have been at the time? Nine, <laughs> ten, you know, maybe, maybe at the time said that he remembered more saying he preferred for his children to watch Desperate Housewives than VeggieTales. 
But it's just an odd position. But these are individuals who are lavished, lavished with leftist media attention. Beth Moore. Have a couple of headlines here we'll put up on the screen for you. The first is from the Toronto Star. Beth Moore, famed Bible teacher, quits Southern Baptist. And the article goes on to, to talk about what, a, what, what an icon she is, how wonderful she is that she's standing up for women. And the Atlantic, I've written for the Atlantic. Atlantic is, is, is far to the left, maybe only thing further to the left than the Atlantic is perhaps in American media, is perhaps Mother Jones and, um, oh, Jacobin magazine. I mean, the Atlantic is, is hard left. And yet, here's the Atlantic saying, the tiny blonde Bible teacher taking on the evangelical political machine. She's framed in such a positive light. Rick Warren is next on my list. Here's the Washington Post. An evangelical star takes on Southern Baptists over ordaining women. Again, positioned very positively. Rick Warren is a guy who is famous for The Purpose Driven Life, a book that I wrote a review for when it came out, I think in 2007. And um, um, Rick Warren is a guy who has, has kind of licked his finger and put it in the air in order to, to determine his own actual stance on political issues. And then finally, Tim Keller. Tim Keller, um, the late pastor, uh, founder and pastor of Redeemer in New York City. Uh, Tim Keller said many good, fine things. As I've said on this podcast, I benefited greatly from his series on the Gospel of John. But towards the end of his, uh, his ministry, the guy was embracing a soft socialism and Marxism, social justice issues, wasn't condemning them the way you would think a guy in his position ought to be. The, the irony also about all of these people is they are constantly warning and haranguing Christians to not be so political. And they're the most political individuals of all. They are the most political individuals of all. Look at this, look at this headline from the New Yorker. The New Yorker. Go and look up the article that the New Yorker wrote about me. Just trash me from beginning to end. Didn't bother calling me to consult me didn't even bother reading the book they were reviewing. They just gave Lawrence Krauss space to accuse me of all kinds of things that I think Krauss himself didn't know were not true because he didn't bother reading the book either. But here's Tim Keller, the far-seeing faith of Tim Keller. Now, let me explain something to you about this. Some of you, or at least some people who might follow me on Twitter it's a strange thing. They'll look at my bio and they will say, oh, you wrote for CNN. You, you were on CNN. You were on MSNBC. You, uh, you wrote for The Atlantic. I'm not following you. They, they say things like that even before they've read a single thing I've said, a single thing that I've written before they've listened to a podcast like this. If I could, I would be on MSNBC and CNN every day because I, as a Christian, I want to take a Christian worldview into the teeth of the opposition. I don't want to just be in, in some Christian ghetto. I don't want to just be in the, the, uh, the Family Life Center or the inspiration section of the bookstore. It's not where I want to be. I want to be in the marketplace of ideas. And if I can do that without compromise, that is where I want to be. But as somebody who has written... For I mean, I've written, I've published many times with CNN. I've been on CNN many times. I've published with The Atlantic, I don't know, two or three times. When the left wants to platform you, you need to reevaluate, you know, take a little time to reflect, why? Why do they want to platform me? I mean, they're hard left. Why would they want to platform me? You have to ask yourself this question, and it is because 
You must be wise. You must understand that their agenda is different from your own. So they might be platforming you because they see something you've said or that you've written as a stick with which to beat conservatives or Christians with. That, that they go, oh, yeah, yeah, we'd love to have you on to hear you say what you're saying so that we can use it, we can weaponize it against other Christians. So there, you have to be aware of that. And it's easy for you to think to yourself, oh, CNN wants to have me on because I'm so intelligent, I'm so handsome, so beautiful, I'm so far-seeing, I'm such a star, I'm such the, 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 the little woman who is taking on bravely the whole Southern Baptist Convention. Arrogance will get you into trouble. And these people are all arrogant. They're all arrogant. And I'm sure that they have lavished in the attention that has been given to them by leftist media. Thinking, perhaps, it's because... You know, David French has been writing for the New York Times, I think probably for less than a year. I'm not sure. But no doubt he thinks to himself, it's because I'm such a great writer, because I'm so wise. And boy, you talk about somebody who's arrogant. He's probably the most arrogant of the lot of them. David French decided America needed a new president. He, was a, he pushed, by the way, the Russia collusion narrative for two or three years saying that Trump should step down, regardless of what you think of Trump, not my point here, but saying that Trump should step down because he was effectively a traitor. Once it was demonstrated factually that that narrative was not true, it seems to me that turnabout is fair play. David French should have resigned from public life because he pushed a false narrative and I don't think he ever apologized for it. I don't think he ever came out and said, I'm so wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Donald Trump, for saying all these things about you that turns out were demonstrably false. He just keeps going. And it seems that that's his mission in life. It's just about Trump. It's just about Trumpism. I mean, he just lives for that. And now here he is writing for the New York Times. I promise you, the New York Times doesn't want him there because they see him as an authentic conservative. A friend of mine who um, is a producer with NPR, he called me up to say, would you be willing to consider to be our go-to conservative on the show All Things Considered? And I said, absolutely. I would love to be your conservative on that show. I'd love to do it. But you are naive if you think that NPR is going to have me regularly on that program. They're not going to do it. And it's because they will see me as a real conservative. They don't want a real conservative. They want a pseudo-conservative. They want a conservative who will condemn his own team. That's what they want. I never got a call back. Never happened. Number six. Churches have become results-driven, and this takes me back to Rick Warren. Rick Warren built this huge church, Saddleback, using marketing techniques. He surveyed, he admits this, he surveyed the community, talks about this in Purpose Driven Life. They sent out people to survey the community to see what they saw their needs actually were. What do you consider to be your needs? And then they built a church around those needs. Now, on the one hand, that sounds kind of good. Well, that's a way of ministering to people. It's not a way to build a church. Because what you're doing is you're determining what you're preaching on, what you're addressing, what you're teaching according to the felt needs of the people. Can you imagine Jesus doing this? The Sermon on the Mount today will be on the things that, that all of you want me to preach on rather than the things that, that God, that Scripture has laid out for you to actually hear. A market-driven church is a useless church. Number seven, arrogance. Churches become incredibly arrogant. I recall some years ago sitting down with the pastor of a mega church, warning him of where we are now. This is, gosh, maybe 15 years ago. And I was telling him, look, 
um, what you see and think of as kind of this pointy-headed academic atheism, I'm telling you, is trickling down into the culture. It will penetrate the corridors of power, of government, of educational institutions at the lower level, primary schools, high schools. It'll be there. It will enter into healthcare. It will enter into Hollywood in a way that's, that's, that's much larger than what you're seeing now, and it'll come into your churches and destroy your churches. And I'll never forget the kind of smug grin he gave to me, and he said, Larry, we're a church of 10,000 people. I don't think we need to worry about anything like that. We're growing. And then I asked him this question. Are you? How many of the new members of your church are here as a result of conversion versus just church musical chairs where they left church A to go to church B because maybe you had a nicer family life center or workout facility or they liked your praise music a little bit better? And his countenance sank when I asked that question. He never answered it. His face, his face answered it, but he never answered it. And I think it's because he knew very well that his church wasn't growing through conversion. And churches aren't. According to Pew Forum survey, both Protestant and Catholic churches in America are declining in membership. Protestant evangelical denominations have remained the most stable, but... It's hardly good news because collectively they are not growing. And what the data means is that the megachurch phenomenon is chiefly one of transfer of membership rather than one of conversion. Worse, according to Lifeway Research, 7 in 10 Protestant children currently in the church will leave it by age 23. I haven't seen the data coming out on the other side of the, the pandemic. I'm sure it is much worse because the pandemic was like a wrecking ball, figuratively speaking, against the church. This is a problem. Number eight, and this one's fairly obvious, love of the world. We all really love the world. In our hearts, we love the world. You'll hear people say, I've even heard pastors say this, follow your heart. <laughs> the biblical message is whatever you do, ladies and gentlemen, do not follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't listen to your heart. Your heart will lie to you. It's following your heart that you will get into trouble. Follow the word. Follow scripture. We love the world. And I don't mean the way John 3.16 says, and God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Not that kind of love, but the love of sin, the love of evil. A desire to fit in, a desire not to be different, a desire not to preach on controversial issues because it might upset someone. It might hurt giving. Fewer people might show up. You might be picketed. You might lose your job. A love of the world has done great damage to the church. Number nine, a lack of courage. Boy, are we in need of real men. Real men, real women. Martin Luther put it this way. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What Martin Luther is saying here, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther is saying here, is that on a battle line, the dev devil may be attacking over here, but you may be charging at windmills over there. 
pounding your pulpit, appearing so self-righteous on issues that no one is really disagreeing with you about, that the culture isn't pushing back on. Where's the battle raging today? I think we could sit and have a poll and come up with that and write them on a whiteboard pretty quickly. The sexualization of children, Marxism, uh, open borders, racism, alleged racism, uh, a unity in Christ, uh, marriage, transgenderism, so-called, social justice, all these things. This is where the battle is raging. But America's pulpits are largely silent on them. And so I ask my question again, where, repeat, where is Task Force 34? Where is the church? The world wonders.